0: Hello and welcome again to Fantastical Truth. This is the podcast from Lorehaven where we find truth in fantastical stories, especially the stories we love from Christian authors, and we applied this truth to the real world that our creator and savior and ultimate superhero, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. I am E. Stephen Burnett, and I publish the Lorehaven magazine, found at Lorehaven.com.
1: And I'm Zachary Russell, but my secret identity is just Zach. This is episode 18, Who Are the First Real Superheroes Hiding in the Bible? And we have a special guest coming on the show to discuss this with us. So, Stephen, what do you think about the superhero movies that have been delayed for this year?
0: I am sad. I'm I'm sad for any movie that that have delayed. First off, as a story creator, I empathize with those who have worked so hard, much blood, sweat, and tears. In the in in, they're still created in the image of God. Whatever their motives for making these movies, it is sobering to me that they have to have these these release dates postponed. And I think even when we, we, it's right to make fun of the celebrities who are you know sitting in their mansions talking about how great the lockdowns are, like. Easy for you in your 30,000 square foot beachfront estate. You know, some of us got a broom closet to live in and don't have <laughs> even a backyard to speak of, really. But we still have to respect the image of God in these people who have made these movies, have written these movies, worked so hard to make them. And in some cases, uh, the actors, especially, have had to stay in this amazing physical shape and discipline themselves like unto athletes to look good for the superhero physique. And now what do they do? Do they get to eat pizza now or do they have to stay on the (laughs) fish oil diet or whatever it is for all these months until they can resume filming again? It's one of the smaller tragedies of this instance, but I think it's going to make it all the better when we finally start getting these stories back in theaters again.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to some of the ones that are coming out. My daughter just asked me to watch the uh, Wonder Woman 2 Trailer, or what is it called, Wonder Woman, nineteen eighty four? Oh, I'm so really looking forward to that, for that one. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Now, I love the first Wonder Woman. I, as you know, I'm 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 a fan of most superheroes. I I love both Marvel and DC. Although people tend to jump on DC a lot, I I will defend uh, most of the DC films. Uh, except for Birds of Prey, which I just don't care about. I I don't care about the villain movies, Zach. I'm in here for the superheroes. Joker is nothing to me unless there is a Batman to stop him. That is my superhero theodicy there.
1: Nice. Well, let's bring in our guest. Today's guest writes about how the Bible positions heroes. He says, quote, There are heroic characters, but the Bible rarely positions them as role models. Quote, What does he mean by that? And wait a minute, isn't that the kind of thing a supervillain would say about a superhero? We're going to make sure. Let's bring in our guest to explain. So we're joined by Chase Repligo. He's a native of the Ozark woods, enjoys being outdoors with his wife and two kids. He's a pastor of Bent Oak Church in Springfield, Missouri, and he hosts the Pastor Writer Podcast. It's a great show you should check out. He interviews pastors and authors such as Max Licato, Philip Yancey, and Karen Swallow Pryor. This podcast has been featured on Gospel Coalition, and his writings have appeared in Christianity Today. More recently, Chase became my friend after we met at the Spark Christian Podcast Conference. So Chase, welcome to Fantastical Truth.
2: Hey, thanks. It's It's a privilege to be here and excited to be able to talk with you guys.
1: All right. So let's jump right into first our evergreen question that we ask our listeners and guests. What was the first fantastical book you remember reading?
2: So, I can't remember which came first, but I was thinking probably. So, two books, maybe these are odd ones. Um, do you remember the book, The Indian in the Cupboard? I don't know if this qualifies yes. as fantasy, but I've I'm heard put of it this one, category. but I've never
0: read it. There was a movie version I recall.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, I read the book as a kid. It's about, you know, a kid who has this sort of playset of little cowboys and Indians, and they're these little figurines, and one day they come to life. And I loved that book as a kid. And then the other one that's more, more centrally fantasy, uh, there was a series of books called Redwall. There were kids' oh, novels yes, about a, yes. a mouse. You remember those? Love those books. Loves those. We read a yeah, few one to take...
0: together. She she absolutely loves them. They're they're famous for being like kind of more adult level talking animal stories. No humans in sight. No Narnian kings or queens, and a lot of feasting.
2: Yep those uh, those were that was pretty pretty early on for me, and I remember I remember the library having them. Like you know, you get some of those books that just stand out. I remember exactly what the covers looked like, the whole bit.
1: That's great. We have a good friend that recommended Redwall. And my kids started reading that. So very cool. Well, we are going to talk about uh, all this and more and specifically about stories that involve superheroes. So I'm going to pitch this over to Steven because he is the superhero aficionado of the two of us. Which would
0: mean nothing to the folks who actually have been reading comic books since 1948 <laughs> or whenever the golden age of comics. Like, no, I'm not old enough to have been with it that long. I'm not that much of a nerd about it. Uh, my nerddom basically goes back to the animated series. I guess I started with the DC animated series. And of course, Marvel movies are all the rage. I've seen every single one, several of those twice. Um, I am uh, infamously known among my friends as a, uh, as a DC film uh, advocate to at least more of uh, the complex superhero stories. Hashtag release the Snyder cut there. I had to say it at least <laughs> once or else I am completely off brand, but yeah, you know, I mean, I've written some superhero movie reviews uh, Christianity today actually uh, for their website. Let me write a few reviews a few years ago. I actually wrote the justice league review, set a little trap for rotten tomatoes that they fell into, by the way. We'll talk about that another time but I'm not so wrapped up in it that I I would not want to subject the whole uh, superhero enterprise to the scrutiny of scripture. Uh, At the same time, I like to have a little bit of fun uh, with uh, the idea that superheroes could be found in the Bible. So I thought we'd do a little thing based on an older article of mine and go through Psalm 18, which actually if you listen very closely, just a little fun warm-up exercise here, you can find some superheroes right here in this Psalm. For example, Psalm eighteen seven. See if y'all can guess who this seems to describe to me. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. End quote. <laughs> who, who's that sound like?
2: I don't know, but I, you know, ironically, I've been preaching through the Psalms right now, so I just am going to get a notepad out here as you instruct me because this will be uh, apparently news to me. So, oh, go for <laughs> it. Okay,
0: Well, this sounds like the Incredible Hulk to me. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. But <laughs> a secret. He's always angry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next, next verse, verse eight. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. End quote. Whereas all these are about the Lord in this majestic language describing god and, and all these amazing you know, metaphorical supernatural images that there to me sounds like uh, the human torch or you know firestorm or any of the other you know oh, okay. fiery powered superheroes
1: yeah I was, I was my first uh so i'm x-men is kind of my one franchise that i really love and you know, that made me think of cyclops but that wasn't really a good comparison i just think of the laser beams shooting out so
0: oh yeah uh, th- these heroes are cross fandom so you get both dc okay. and marvel represented here uh, verses 9 and 11, actually, he, uh, no, let's see. Yeah, in 9, you get thick darkness was under his feet. And then verse 11, he made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. That sounds a little bit, a uh, little bit batty to me.
1: Sounds like I am Batman.
0: Just a bit, yes. <laughs> yeah. I am vengeance. <laughs> I am the night. I am Batman. <laughs> it's my best Kevin Conroy there. <laughs>
1: I'm more of a Christian Bale Batman. Everyone makes fun of him, but i those are my favorite ones.
0: I am a diehard Batfleck defender now okay. as well. Best, most comic accurate Batman on screen so far. And of course, Lil Thor. He flashed forced lightnings and routed them.
2: Now, see, I uh, I have young kids, so when you go through these illusions in my home, the first connection to superheroes would be Jack Jack from the Incredibles. Oh, so yeah, that's uh, you know flames and anger and lightning, <laughs> and that that's the reference you would get around. It's here. Basically,
0: all the yeah, in Incredibles too. I think Edna Mudd says your child is a polymorph, and means <laughs> he has all these other all these other powers. And then there's another verse. It's not in front of me where it uh, sounds like uh, it says, uh, "With the, with my God, I can scale a wall." Or it sounds a little bit uh, Spider-Man like. So nice. There's a few others in there. I think is is really fun.
1: Well, these are Stephen. These are really cool ways to see how s- the superheroes in comics are, in, in a sort of way, found in the Bible. But let's let's get into kind of our main topic of who are the actual heroes in the Bible and are they superheroes? And what is you know why are we drawn to these superheroes? And I would I would posit that the superheroes we're drawn to, and we'll, let's talk about modern superheroes. We're, we're drawn to them because it reveals our deepest desires, good or bad. And so, Stephen, of of all that list and of Chase, uh, you two here, who's your favorite superhero or your super your favorite franchise of superheroes, and what resonates with you about those stories?
2: Probably uh, I love the Batman stuff. You guys were already talking about it. And partly I love it because not just from an entertainment perspective, but it, it, it has been interesting to see the way how the recent Batman movies have touched culture. And I've always been intrigued by the fact that the Joker has had such a moment in our culture and how it highlights... The changing and evolving of the roles these heroic stories play. I mean, I sort of well, I think back to some of the stuff I grew up on. Not in the fantasy category, but some of my early childhood role mo- or heroes were. Um, I was really into the old um, Davy Crockett movies that Dis- Disney did when I was a kid. And uh, now they would never make it. They're completely politically incorrect. But as a kid, <laughs> that was sort of the image of a, of a hero. We had this sort of, you know, there was integrity and honesty. And, and really, like, what kind of... There's no change, right? In most... Most of the time when you're developing a character in literature, you're looking for that character to undergo some sort of change through the story. And oftentimes these old types of heroes didn't exhibit that kind of change. They were a sort of stock hero. They had certain qualities about them that were exemplified through the stories. Um, The the heroes we have today, we're, we're far more interested in seeing behind that mask of heroics, trying to touch something of the humanity of it, uh, sensing and seeing some of our own struggles within those. Instead of the hero being somebody that sort of inspires us to that ideal, we want to see them struggling with that ideal. And I think back to... Some of this traces back to there's there's a famous Spanish novel. It's actually, besides the Bible, the most sold novel in world history, uh, the story of Don Quixote. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. Um, mm-hmm. You may have gotten some exposure in like a uh, Western literature class in college. But uh, Don Quixote was written by Cervantes in the uh, it was published in the 17th century. And uh, it was a time when sort of all those grand stories of the Crusades and massive naval battles and kings and, you know, conquests to to the new land, all of that was beginning to sort of collapse. Spain was uh, its monarchy was kind of falling apart. It was losing control of its colonies. It was suffering military defeats. And there was this genre of literature that was that was huge at the time called um, the, the chivalry novel. And it had this very sort of formulaic adventure story. There was a knight, and the knight would go off and fight fantastical beasts, and he would do it in the name of the woman that he loved, and he would sort of exemplify these virtues. And uh, Cervantes wrote this book, Don Quixote, about a man in his 50s who got so obsessed with reading these hero novels that his mind, <laughs> the way he puts it, is that his mind dried up. And he became delusional and thought that he was a knight and he was being called by God to restore chivalry. So he literally polishes up this old armor and, and takes his sort of scrawny horse and and climbs on him as a steed. And he he uh, knights a, uh, a peasant farmer uh, uh, who he claims to now be his liege. And he goes off looking for adventure. And the famous iconic scene from the book is, of course, he sees these giant windmills and believes them to be giants. And he challenges them and rides into one with his lance and ends up being knocked from his horse by one of the arms of the windmill. And the whole book is about people sort of laughing at his madness. You know, how can you believe in these ideals of knighthood in this modern world where all of that's in collapse? And eventually at the end of the book, spoiler alert, if you go read, it's like a thousand pages, so I doubt you will. But <laughs> um, at the end of the book, he, through all of the humiliation and people sort of taunting of him, he sort of comes out of his delusion and realizes he's just an old man with nothing sort of virtuous or meaningful about his life. And the book ends with him dying in bed of a fever, sort of just this like common thing. Um, and it strikes this really sort of sad note where you almost want the delusion to be true. Like it, it, mm. it's more meaningful for him to have been a knight than the reality of just being an old man with a sort of fantastical idea. People credit that book with being the first modern novel. Um, you can actually, the whole idea he has, um, uh, Pedro Sancho is his sidekick. It, uh, the whole sort of like archetype of sidekicks is tracked back to that book. So uh, most of Robin Hood and Batman, you can track that relationship sort of um, literary effect back to Don Quixote. But it um, it's considered the first modern novel because it highlights this desire for something of virtue and meaning and ideal Now that we also live in a world where we don't actually believe in virtue and ideals and meaning uh, and, and a longing for something of that to be true. I think there is a lot that is happening in current hero movies that is bridging that gap, wanting to find something of meaning and justice and purpose and value and heroics and wrestling to do it in a world that when you turn off the movie doesn't seem to function on those paths of adventure and heroics and ideals. So yeah, so um, the Batman uh, Joker one is an interesting one for that because we got so interested in the villain. uh, It's always been the case, but they are almost to the degree of the hero and seeing the way that those heroes are wrestling to understand what heroics is, is such an interesting innovation in the way hero stories have been told in the past.
0: My favorite, I have to say, would be Superman, just because he's the first and the best handled well with experienced storytelling hands. And I won't go on too much about this. I mean, I love Batman, also Spider Man, the Avengers, all of those. Like, someone asks me, "Who's your favorite superhero?" I want to turn it back and go, "Who's your favorite child?" Like, I can, hmm. I can say a few that aren't my favorites, <laughs> but you know, handled well. You know, I enjoy the story of a hero who truly wants to be a hero and follow other heroes and live up to those heroic ideals despite their flaws. I mean, Batman is often understood, uh, especially in some of the storytellers who've had him for a while as a very flawed hero. You know, at times he verges on being an anti-hero uh, in Batman v Superman. Batman nearly goes over to the dark side. And as we record this, actually they've said about the new uh, Batman trilogy that they think it's going to be even darker than the Christopher Nolan films. And I go, mm-hmm. well, there was a version of it played by Ben Affleck in between that was pretty dark. And, that met with some mixed response. But if you understand it, then actually it's a subversion of that darkness. He ends the film saying men are still good. You know, effectively I was wrong in trying to be such a, such a flaw trying to be a hero despite my flaws. And for Superman, I love that he in the best storytelling hands will pursue those virtues despite what the world around him will do and in superman's last uh, outing and at least in batman v superman a lot of folks misunderstood that because they believed that it was trying to subvert superman to say that he's worthless he doesn't belong here uh he's he's now too dark he's morally compromised when in fact you see superman struggling with the world around him and that actually resembles this world and i just love that approach or at least that idea that a hero can fight to be a hero but it is going to be the sin in the world around us that is going to challenge that ideal that is going to make the superhero look inward and wonder, wait a minute, what am I doing? And then if we see him though, go back to being a hero and fighting real villains and not just going overboard with fantasies like Don Quixote. That's, that's the kind of story that I love best in this genre.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I I mentioned X-Men and Wolverine is, is my favorite superhero and I, I've been trying to think about why that is. And so I, I'm basically Gen X. I mean, I'm kind of in the middle of Gen X and millennial. But Wolverine is very much the Gen X superhero. You know, he's this loner. He's got this tragic past he doesn't really want to talk about and when he can't really remember it. All the stuff was done to him, but now he's he's invulnerable and he and he heals on his own and he doesn't need anyone and he rides a motorcycle. Okay, so he's he's a lot of the symbolism of that generation. But at the same time, he keeps finding himself in these situations where he needs others and he needs a team and even he keeps leaving and he keeps trying to fight battles on his own, but he he needs help and then he doesn't want to be a hero, but then he has to be the hero. And so there's a lot that I can resonate with uh, in Wolverine's journey. But you know, I I'm stuck with Batman though, Steven, I got to tell you, I I love the Nolan Batman films. I think it's a great, reflection of our current era of like the war on terrorism i i think um the uh the dark knight was just a perfect allegory for all of that but i love uh man of steel uh and not necessarily for the and i know batfleck shows up sort of and he shows up in uh, the next one batman versus superman your favorite but i love the portrayal of that villain because it was general zod and we're not really talking about villains too much but general zod in my opinion, is the best villain of them all no, because he, is, he, wa- really. he, mm-hmm. he wanted something good, you know, and, and he wanted like the Joker is like, it's kind of obvious why we like the Joker. It He is like wish fulfillment. Some and people I, I like wrote, the
0: Joker a little too much. I would
1: think, yeah. <laughs> And you know, I, I wrote a, I wrote a post on this on speculative faith that villains like that just kind of reveal our own dark desires and our own like kind of quest for ultimate freedom over and control over everything. But General Zod, I think, is is really hits close to home because he wanted something good for his people, and then that got really twisted.
2: That is the very reason I was mm-hmm. born.
1: <laughs> yeah. So this this is good. So let's look at uh, yeah. Those villains point.
2: are so different. They um. The reason I'm sort of been drawn to the Batman Joker one is for me the Joker is it's so much the kind of nihilism that I see setting in in the way people think that almost exactly you know, there's a, a German term that uh, talks about you almost take pleasure or or joy in watching other people destruct.
0: Is that Schadenfreude?
2: And there's a kind of enjoyment in seeing their collapse, this nihilism where because my own ideals have been thwarted, I take this deep joy and satisfaction in watching other people's ideals be destroyed. And that's part of the, the Batman tension. He's not a superhero in the traditional sense that he has the superpower. He's trying to figure out how to be a hero or what that even means in this sort of nihilism that's so pervasive around him i just see that as so relevant to to what i see people struggling with when they think about heroics
0: well that's why that quote is still so quoted and so relevant today from alfred portrayed by michael kane in the dark knight some men just want to watch the world burn and it's yeah. true it's true I, we look at that and go in one way that doesn't make any sense this is just a movie no one could possibly be like that but then we then we look at the world around us and we realize no there are many people exactly like this, unfortunately. Well,
1: and that literally just happened in Australia. I mean, there's okay, there's a. I know the Australia wildfires are very complex and and whatnot, but there were actually dozens of people apparently that were trying to encourage these fires or light more fires, and they just got obsessed with it. And so, yeah, there are literally people like this.
2: There's a great line in a uh, Walker Percy novel, uh, The Moviegoer, and it's uh, it's about a guy who just gets, it's, it's actually kind of Don Quixote-esque, it's about, he just gets obsessed with movies. And uh, there's there's this line where he says that men are dead, 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 and he says, the only thing we fear worse than the bomb falling, he's thinking about the sort of atomic age, the only thing we fear worse than the bomb falling is the bomb not falling at all. And I've always been sort of haunted mm. by that line of, uh-huh. the only thing we fear worse than this this destruction is that nothing will happen that our lives will just sort of fizzle out in nothingness I always thought it's a really powerful way of putting it. Zach
0: Have I you think seen, that uh, also explains the pandemic some of the pandemic psychology going on is that people just feel ready for some kind of disaster just something going on some of that's going on
1: there's 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 this hilarious uh, photo series of memes of this guy in like tactical gear and camouflage and AR 15 and all this ammo around him and all these oh, you know, MREs that. And he says, "You know, this isn't the apocalypse I was promised." I was and he's promised just staring zombies, out the window. Yes. <laughs> That'd be yeah, exact- but
2: it's, it's a real question. What do you What do you do when that great moment of our age comes, and you will spend it at home disinfecting doorknobs and rationing toilet paper? You know, it See, messes Joker with this idea say, of her hero.
0: The Joker would just say, "That's the joke. That's a terrific joke," and then he would laugh maniacally. <laughs>
1: Well, let's, uh, let's turn to the Bible and look at, it sounds like such a Jesus juke, but let's, let's look at the heroes and maybe the superheroes in the Bible and talk about, you know, what's the correct view of the heroes there. So, uh, Chase, I'd sent you earlier this, uh, screenshot of the Kingstone Bible. And did you get a chance to look at that or? Yeah, absolutely. uh, Yeah. So this is something my, my kids love. It's a, a hard Well, there's, there's all different versions of it, but we have the hardbound versions of the Kingstone Bible. It's like three volumes and man, there's just these amazing, it's like, it's like the comic book version of the Bible, but it's still very extremely faithful to the text. in in my opinion, and the one that really stands out is Samson. And it shows this huge muscular guy pushing the columns apart, breaking the chains off them. Everyone's scattering, you know, for safety, the temple is falling down. And then there's, king david and he's this brave young boy and goliath is this giant armored guy falling over and so i i love you know i love how they are taking the superhero genre and just putting it in the bible let's just talk about that for a second like who who are those people in the bible that we naturally think of as superheroes
2: Yeah, sure. Um, You know, a a lot of it has to do with what you want to define as a superhero. But for sure, the Book of Judges is filled with the kind of storytelling... Um, Which by storytelling, I don't mean that it's untrue, but the way those narratives have been written, it's filled with the kind of stories that we associate with the kind of hero story. So the book of Judges, which Samson is a part of, is 12 cycles of Judges. They're these individuals who are called out to rescue Israel from captivities of various kinds, Philistines or the Midianites. Um, And they're oftentimes, um, they're put into these sort of heroic paths and they exemplify some of these characteristics of heroics or superhuman um, Uh, ability or or stories. Um, So, you know, there's a great... Um, assassination story in there. There's a great, you know, I love the the Gideon story. You know, he's hiding from the Midianites who keep coming around and stealing. They basically would allow the Israelites to grow the crops. And then when it was time for harvest, they would just come take them and let them do all the work. And he's hiding in this wine press down in the ground, trying to beat out enough wheat to make food. Uh, and an angel shows up and says to him, well, hello, mighty warrior. You know, it's the irony of, he doesn't look like a mighty warrior, <laughs> but of course his story will become that. And Samson's is a piece of that. So there's a great, yeah, obviously the great sort of um, superhuman stories, if you want to call them that through the book of Judges, are a great place to turn. Um, and then you get great, they're more realistic in nature. So you were alluding to David. Uh, the the I think the stories of first and second Samuel, the, the Saul and David stories are some of the best narrative in scripture. Uh, they tend to be a little more psychological. So, and I mean that in the literary sense of they're really trying to show the the internal struggles of those characters that they're going through. Saul in particular is that way. Although there's such a
0: streaming drama potential there. It's, it should should be a good biblically faithful one.
2: And Saul is pitched almost like a superhero. In fact, it's, his is an interesting story because the people take one look at him and say, that's a leader. That's our King because he's tall and handsome and he just looks like the kind of person who would lead. So the, the, um, the writer of first and second samuel is is messing with those sort of expectations in the way that he tells that story through those books. So yeah, those old testament uh, narratives are a great place to go looking for some of those same archetypes you see in the in the superhero stories.
1: Chase, I read your article about Samson. It says why every millennial man should reread the Samson story. And it was so that was such a good article, Chase, and I I I thought about my own understanding of Samson over the years when I was when I was a kid and I and I you know just heard the Bible stories like every other kid I thought man Samson is awesome He's this big strong man like kind of like the incredible hulk or something and that's you know that was kind of my view of him as a kid as a young man though as a as a young christian I looked at Samson like oh he is a um, cautionary tale about the power of lust that's what every young man you know talks a lot about mm-hmm. in college and high school, and so you know Samson had his eyes gouged out, so you better not you know look lustfully with your eyes, and that and that's kind of as far as I thought about Samson. But Chase, I love your article about Samson shows us something really deep about human nature and especially today's culture that is a little more uncomfortable to think about. So I'm going to go through your article and just pull out a couple of quotes that really stood out to me. And it really starts with this, where you said, quote, we've been told our entire lives that you can be anything you want to be, but by 30, the truth has finally started to set in. It's not entirely true, at least not the way we imagine it would be, end quote. So, so Chase, tell us, you know, why did you say that, that quote in reference to Samson? Like, How does Samson kind of exemplify that aspect?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, I love baseball. I've always loved baseball. My brother was a great baseball pitcher. My dad played college football. Um, I went the route of playing the saxophone in high school because <laughs> I, uh, I did not have the ability, no matter how much I loved the game. In fact, my dad early on taught me to, to score, You know, like you see old men doing at baseball games where you actually like there's certain ways you write out what is happening pitch by pitch in these scorebooks. Uh, and I think he did it because he realized early on my future was not as a professional baseball player, no matter how much I loved it, right? That eventually, sets in. there are certain realities. You know the, the, the thing people miss about the Samson story is that real tension of Samson's story is that he is born into a commitment that he did not make. He is born as a Nazarite. So he's unable to touch a corpse, he's unable to drink wine. He's unable, uh, in his case, to cut his hair. That's not something that at 16, he sort of thought was cool and decided he was going to pursue. Um, that is given to his mother before his birth. And he's raised into this sort of peculiar, strange, you know, he's, he's an Israelite living in the hill country, kind of scraping out a living. And his whole life, he grows up looking down on these major Philistine cities on the plains. The Philistines are probably Phoenicians. They've come from Greece, ancient Greece. They've come, they're, they're mariners, they're sea people. So they're so different than the Canaanites, so different than the other Canaanites around them. Um, and they build these big cities and they're known for their innovation in metalworking. They usher in new new age away from bronze. Um, and so Samson grows up with this sort of strange custom his parents have forced on him. And he looks down on these technologically advanced sort of alluring, distant, sort of exotic cities. And he finds himself just infatuated with all things Philistine. I mean, that's really why he keeps, he just can't help himself. He keeps going down to these Philistine cities and falling in love with Philistine women. Um, and the whole time the Philistines just mock him, you know, he ends up marrying this Philistine girl and what do they do? They play games. They mess with her and him and uh, they're constantly picking fights with him. He, he can never get the approval of those people that he's so desperate to be like, to run away from home and to be like the Philistines. It, it just never works. And that's really one of the great tensions of Samson's story is this thing he is constantly pursuing ends up sort of mocking him in response. And it just sort of revolves more and more downward throughout the story. He can't ever possess that thing that he wants. Um, and I think, You miss that sometimes when you read the Samson story as just, which you're right, most of us do, a tough guy who made some poor choices and paid the consequences but got it right in the end. It's really a question about what you've inherited and what you desire and how you decide what to pursue. Chase, I
0: have to say that I had not thought about Samson being infatuated with Philistine culture as a as a motif in that narrative but now that you say it it suddenly boom comes to life and i realize oh that is there that is absolutely there in the text like these people from whom he's supposed to liberate israel he just keeps going back to and and i can't help but at least for my part you may not go this way but for my part i can't help but think of that as some kind of application to christians today who we know for example that there's a lot in uh, in the world Uh, the world system that is this passing age that is secular, that is opposed to God. And even though we know that that's the sort of thing we are supposed to oppose, we cannot help but be enamored with that. That even when we were talking earlier about uh, someone being obsessed with movies, I mean, even in some of our popular culture engagement, we're just maybe a little too enamored with some of these things, even though we're trying to find the Christ figures or, you know, find the common grace or whatever. It's at least something that I'm aware of. And now when I go back and reread the Samson narrative, I'm going to watch for those bits.
2: Yeah, it's perpetually the Israelite problem, and all the prophets get called to do this, judges in so many ways. Why do they keep finding themselves in the same situation where they're sort of oppressed and ruled over? It's because they can't step into the identity they've received through God. They're constantly sort of infatuated with what's—remember, the worship happening around Israel is all about pragmatics. It's you worship this particular God to get rain, you worship this God this way to have more children, you worship this God to be successful in battle, and here they are sort of Backwoods people in the hills trying to scrape out a, a nation and an identity, and they see how well those gods seem to be working for people like the Philistines, and they're just drawn to it over and over. And then again, Samson. the thing it comes through so clearly is he's constantly trivializing those things, right? So he, he has this encounter where he rips a lion apart and finds in its carcass honey. And what does he do with it? He turns it into a little riddle, a pun. And he starts, um, he starts sort of, uh, betting his, his wedding guests, whether they can solve the pun or not. And it's, it's, he trivializes this experience or he, um, it doesn't come through in the English well, but when he kills all of the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, um, in Hebrew, there's he actually makes a little pun, a little riddle at his victory. He's alone, but he's standing on all these bodies, holding up this jawbone. And he says, with this jawbone, the English translates it, I piled them up heaps upon heaps. Well, in Hebrew, that word heaps is basically the same word for for jawbone of a donkey. So he's, he turns this whole victory into a kind of pun, right? <laughs> he almost He almost sort of is mocking it. And that's this typical Samson move. He can't ever really see what's going on because he's constantly trivializing and and turning these things into to games in a sense
1: so yeah he has superhero catchphrases is what you're saying that's exactly he loves a good riddle apparently (laughs) that was the thing you
2: did at weddings was bet and gamble on figuring out riddles
0: (laughs) imagine flipping the jawbone up in the air and then he catches it and then he blows on the tip like a gunfighter yeah samson's (laughs) flippancy with especially with his his supernatural gift it says the spirit came upon him and then suddenly he's empowered with these super strength to do these amazing feats and the flippancy with which he treats it, you know, really to me illustrates his role as a failed savior figure for Israel. You know, every judge in the book of Judges is flawed in some way, speaking the best of them, and therefore is a bad representative for Israel. You know, Israel, then you're left with the book you know, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A savior is still to come and the nation cannot fulfill its original God created purpose to be a light to all nations. When they are treating God's gifts with such flippancy and failing to, in, in a sense, evangelize these nations around them because they're so enamored with these nations around them.
2: Yeah, with um, the only translator I've ever read, there's an older translator who tr- takes that line and says, with the jawbone of an ass, I piled them up in mass. And that's a little uh, bit of what's actually happening boom. in the text. He's sort of, that's there's right. your one-liner, right? He's kind of making a pun, a joke out of this thing that really has not just been about his strength. Remember the story? It's been about the way the spirit strengthens him in those times of need. And what does he do? Does he turn around and say, oh, to the spirit, you know, be the glory, be the, you know, the, the honor from this. No, he says, look what I've done.
1: Man, Samson has, um, it's like he doesn't really know why he's been given this power or what he's supposed to do or he's just kind of yeah forget that he's just kind of doing whatever he wants and i like how in your article you really center it on samson's pursuit of his identity and you like you, and you said quote you know there's no higher calling than self discovery that's the that's the greatest adventure and you know that has become the new hero's journey and chase i i think that really resonates with me i um i went through a long period uh in college and post college where i was really obsessed with like personality tests and spiritual gift assessments and you know really discovering who i am and there's a good reason for that i grew up in a very competitive academic culture in high school the reason for choosing a college or a major or whatever or was just to compete it was just to do the hard thing and do the impossible thing and and also i just kind of went along with the crowd like i wanted to study one thing but the crowd said hey you should study this and so i chose one uh area of engineering and then i didn't like that so i chose another area of engineering because that's what the crowd was kind of doing and i liked those things but it was more that i didn't really know and didn't really want to own up to what i really liked. And so then I kind of fought against that in my twenties and I'm like, all right, I'm going to figure out who I am and figure out all this stuff. And I, um, got to this point where I, I realized, man, I am thinking about, I'm getting obsessed with this. And a lot of it is just this cultural obsession with self-discovery. And I read this quote, I, I can't remember the author. I think it was Tim Keller who said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Was that Keller or was that, is that originally C.S. Lewis? And I think it's, 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 it might be it's Lewis based or, or on a fake C.S. Lewis C.S. quote. Yeah, 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 I, yeah know, I think <laughs> it's fake C.S. Lewis,
2: paraphrase C. <laughs> But it's Lewis. a good one nonetheless. So, it is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah and so I, I realized, okay, I just need to kind of step away from this stuff. Well, then around that time along comes the Enneagram. I think we've all kind of heard of the Enneagram now. The, the Enneagram is such, you know, it's a huge thing now. And I, I, I'm from Austin, so I'm kind of suspicious of big, huge fads. But the point of all of this is that we in our culture are just, dr- this is drilled into us, find out who you are, find your true self. And I think there is, there are some good reasons for that, but I think that ultimately th- this is a, a dead end. And I think you agree with that too from your article. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, I do. I, uh, you know, for me, some of this comes from just my own family history. You know, I think about, I think about my grandparents. Um, I don't know if my grandpa ever once asked himself, "Who am I, and is this path I'm on leading to a personal <laughs> fulfillment of identity?" Right? Like he he worked for the railroad for years. Um, he loved to garden, and in retirement, he gardened and sold produce out of his own garden. And um, but there's, <laughs> I mean this with all respect. There's nothing. There's nothing successful out of his life that anyone will remember outside of. The fact that he had kids and loved his wife and lived and served in a community, and but I remember my grandpa as, and my especially my grandma, I remember when my grandpa passed away. I remember how much my grandma missed him, and I remember just seeing that as a kid. And they were not my grandpa's from the old school type, right? Like there wasn't a lot of hugging and loving, and like you know, his presence was the way he communicated that he cared. He was there, <laughs> uh, but I remember thinking, like, man, that there was a depth to their relationship after fifty years of marriage that I don't think you can get from constantly just chasing the next feeling or the next thing you might be interested in. What it, what it, what it produced in me was this realization that there's something to commitment and particularly commitment, that pushes beyond just what I'm feeling or wanting or what the next thing is. And part of that's knowing myself well enough to know, man, I can get obsessed with something, spend three months on it and then burn out and not ever be interested in it again. Right. That that's where my emotional state carries me. Like this is what I want to do today. Six months from now I've got another idea. Six months from now it's something else. I think some of the personality trait stuff It can be helpful in forcing yourself to think about things maybe you've not considered, but it's not a kind of salvation. Uh, Knowing something about your dispositions or personality traits isn't the same thing as having done something meaningful or accomplished something with your life. Um, and, And I think commitment is that piece that seeing in places like my grandparents and then coming back to the Samson story, seeing that that was really the thing that Samson kept missing. It was this... What he saw as holding him back, this commitment, this identity of his people, his family, this Nazarite vow, what he saw as something that was stifling his self discovery was really the thing that was giving him the, the greatest meaning he could have ever found, but he just couldn't see it. And recognizing if we are people who really trust God, that God is doing something, he's created us for a purpose. Then the most important calling of my life is not for me to go out and discover that right to go off on the adventure and find my purpose. It's really to commit myself to it. Okay, God, what is it you are doing, and how do I commit myself more deeply to that thing and find my purpose in it? Um, you know the great line of the Samson story because Samson's not like as much as I've been sort of razzing on him. He's not. Um, he's not a story of just failure. It's not a humiliation story. He ends up with his eyes gouged out. He ends up his head shaved. Of course, Delilah betrays him. It's not really just Delilah. It's everything he's been pursuing, which Delilah embodies that's portrayed him. It's this whole path he's been on. Everything, the Philistines that he wants to be like, the love that he's looking for, the strength that he's always depended on, it all fails him in that moment. It's all not actually there. Um, And he ends up sort of grinding wheat in this temple of Dagon, the Philistine god. And uh, he, it's really interesting. There's this line where it says, and it's really simple in Hebrew, but the hair began to grow back on his head. And it, it's this little literary device of saying that who God has called you to be is not something that you can control. No more than uh, you could say, I want long hair. I'm going to close my eyes and bear down and try to grow hair faster, <laughs> right? <laughs> like something that is so you is something you have very little actual control over, Uh, Samson's hair begins to grow back, and it's a great literary way of saying that even after all of his failures, who God had determined him to be would be there. Although in now a sort of sad and humble state, nonetheless, he would be the kind of savior who would save his people and begin that overthrow of the Philistine oppression. Um, Although it was such a painful road for him to finally come to that realization of, this is who God has asked me to be, and to be faithful is to commit myself and to receive and accept that.
0: So interestingly, before we started uh, the podcast, I had not even thought about the fact that uh, first off, Samson probably is circling back to the fictional superheroes is at the back maybe of the imaginations of a, a couple of chaps who invented a hero called Superman uh, back in the golden age, you know, this super strong man and kind of a more positive spin on the German idea of the ultimate man, the Ubermensch, uh, probably mangled that pronunciation there as much as I mangled uh, the previous one. But interestingly, Samson, by that name, is actually a character in DC Comics. And as I think about it, at least I think it's his sole appearance in uh, Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman series, I can't help but see there's actually some similarities between that character and the biblical Samson. You know, he's just sort of arrogant. He's kind of flippant. He's sort of a journeyman. He's just sort of a mythological figure going place to place to place. Oh, and he's got an eye for Lois Lane. And there's even some riddling going on in that scene. And Superman, who in that uh, series especially, is much more of the good hero. Uh, he's nearing his death, but that's, that's the arc there, is that he's trying to accomplish all these things, you know, these, these labors at the end of his journey there. Uh, Superman bests uh, Samson and his friend Atlas, because why not, uh, in a riddling contest and uh, therefore gets to, gets to hang on to Lois Lane and as you described Samson in in the scripture yeah it's it's more and more you know, and even the, that fictional character, I see the parallels more and more, especially among uh, christians frankly who who might be tempted either by the fictional archetype of the superheroes from the comics you know or the ideal version of the ultimate man which you get from either conservative circles or you know different uh, different religious circles. it doesn't work it ultimately collapses in on itself and you are just constantly trying to evaluate your own identity and just looking at well looking at your navel all the time and then we look back by contrast to you know those older templates of masculinity i just can't help but think that some of those folks uh, those men of the past seem just too busy to deal with all of that that what is causing that do you think uh, chase where where we're we're getting wrapped up and you know maybe helpful things like personality exams and such. But what do you think is the cause of this identity crisis in, in this, in this era that we have, especially, you know, emphasizing men and masculinity, but it it applies really to everyone.
2: Yeah, well you sort of mentioned the German idea of the 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 superman. Um of course there's a a lot of that comes out of Nietzsche's idea of the death of god and where he writes about the death of god because Nietzsche would ultimately posit the same idea that um that we would create a new kind of humanity out of now no longer being subjected to to a notion of god, we would become like gods. And in the where he writes about that the the story of the madman where he declares that famous line uh, that god is dead. There's a great place where he says, but what, what will we have to do uh, to, to fix the problem, essentially? He says, what sort of sacred games will we have to create? What, where will we find the water to wash the blood off of our hands? Um, th- what he's getting hmm. at is where will we find the meaning that an ultimate figure like God once gave even common lives, right? Any life could have meaning because of its relationship to a creator and God. If that doesn't exist, then where do we go looking for sacredness and for ideals? What is heroics if there is nothing but life to be lived? What does it mean to be heroic? And so I think a lot of what's going on is we've been looking as a culture for Uh, For a sense of meaning. Uh, We sort of alluded to it with that idea of even looking for a disaster, looking for some sort of crisis so that something of our lives could take on significance or we could do something significant because there's something significant happening. Uh you guys will be familiar probably with Joseph Campbell's work. Um Joseph oh, yeah. Campbell was uh wrote a book uh on developing the idea of the monomyth. Well, I think of, the him hero as sort of a 1000 of like faces. Yes. Yeah, thought, think of him as kind of like Indiana Jones type, you know, in the 50s and 60s he was looking for all these ancient myths and going to these indigenous people and collecting their stories. And he sort of boiled it all down to it's very um Uh, he boils it down to this phrase, follow your bliss, that the hero's journey is all about setting off an adventure after what's compelling to you. Uh, and I think, I think he gets it. I think it's the exact opposite of the Samson story. Maybe that's the right way to put it. That following your bliss for, for Campbell was the way you go and find something meaningful in adventure. And I think what Samson's story, I mean, what at the end of the day was God asking Samson to do, uh, to not cut his hair to not touch a corpse and to not eat or drink of wine, grapes. Uh, you know, it was not that significant of a calling. <laughs> Somehow God was going to work that out into this role of judge and savior that he would play. But Samson wasn't being asked to do it. He wasn't being asked to go set off an adventure, go pick a fight, go do something significant. Um, we are supposed to be the people that by the very fact that we believe that there is a storyline that exists, a biblical narrative that has a beginning and has an ultimate end and that our lives are in the midst of this story, we're supposed to be, our lives take on meaning by the fact that they exist in that story. But when that story doesn't exist anymore, we have to make our own stories. We have to find our own meaning. We have to prove ourselves in that story. When really, I think for those of us who believe in this meta-narrative, you know, Christ and a kingdom that's coming and is here, then anything, no matter how small that that king, that God calls you into, takes on that value of being a part of that story. Where that doesn't exist, we're forced to make it up as we go along to find something ourselves.
1: Yeah, Jason, I love the other article you wrote, which we'll link to in the show notes which is why uh, when being heroic means staying home, (laughs) you know, and again, it's like, this is not the apocalypse. I, I imagined, you know, that whole thing. And I, I have some friends that are doctors and nurses and others that work in hospitals. And, you know, I, I have to admit, part of me is a little jealous of them. It's like, Oh wow. They are the ones being applauded. They are the ones You know, they're the heroes of the age. And there's part of me that wants to be the hero, even though there's part of me that's honestly pretty scared of this coronavirus. And there's part of me that's like lazy. I'm like, actually, I like just being at home all day. But, um, you know, this, this whole idea of heroism is really on my mind right now. So Chase, just to wrap up our time here, why don't you answer this question for me or fill in the blank. A Christian hero is blank.
2: Faithful is always the word I come back to. Um, if I can offer you more than just a, w- a word as well, there's the one of my favorite scenes from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, I don't know, remember if it's in the movie or not. I don't think it is. It's in the book where Sam and, and Frodo are on their own. They're they're nearing Mordor. Everything has just sort of felt like it's not gone the way that he expected. And uh, Frodo is sort of thinking back to the moment when they set out from the the uh, from their homes, and he's. He's saying to Sam, this isn't what I thought an adventure was going to feel like, like all the Mm. adventures we read about in those books and all the famous people who had set out on them. This hasn't turned out like I expected when we left. And uh, Sam says something great to him. He just says, but maybe this is how all heroes felt in the middle of their adventure. Maybe Um, if they had given up mm -hmm. because it didn't feel like an adventure, we would have never known any of their stories at all. I think about that constantly. We look at a story, a hero story, and we see the whole thing and expect to experience that whole thing the moment we set out. Um, and the truth is the vast majority of that story never feels like, nor for the hero, a, a, a heroic story at all. Most of that story feels like defeat, feels like insignificance, feels like failure, but it's only through the faithfulness of just continuing and seeing where that story goes that something good comes out of it. So I. I think what the Bible teaches us to do from these stories of heroes, of superheroes, if you will, is to just practice, well, Eugene Peterson has a great phrase for it, a long obedience in the same direction, a kind of faithfulness that just is eager to see how the story evolves without feeling like I have to force it tomorrow for my life to have any meaning or significance.
0: Well, Chase, when you say that, I'm gripped with the truth that yes, heroism, when you're right in the middle of it, does not feel like those movies and and the example that comes to my mind is not so much a superhero movie but just any movie where a hero of some kind is training we have a training montage and it's kind of a joke now it's a bit of a trope like oh here's the here's the training montage and actually evangelical movies have their parallel it of sometimes literally a training montage especially in a sports movie but the training montage can cover months and yes we don't want to Follow that grueling, that plotting, you know, the falling down and picking yourself up all the time, but don't confuse the montage for reality. That montage is as much heroic in the, in the human sense than anything else, but it is normal life. And at least my temptation so much is to confuse that big picture storytelling, either in a superhero movie or an adventure novel or whatever for reality. I want to get to the cool parts, those uh, those crescendo moments. But Jesus doesn't promise a crescendo every day, every month, every year, sometimes not even in a lifetime. The crescendo is eschatological, which is in the future. It, he's promised that in eternity. You know, maybe every day in New heavens and New Earth is going to be that pinnacle of emotion and that heroic feeling of satisfaction and fulfillment and all of that. But it is Not yet. And we can't get today confused with that future that's promised. Although at least I find it helpful. I still find the movies helpful to see that example of a storyteller who's, you know, condensing this tale of a fictional character, usually fictional in this heroic narrative. And so we can see what our lives may look like to an outside, almost eternal perspective in the future. I'm thinking actually of another hero, uh, at least the on-screen version of Captain America, which uh, we, we didn't mention him in the favorite heroes, but he is also one of my favorites because unlike more modern superheroes, we have Captain America at least in the films coming from the 1940s where he does have that simple morality and that more of that greatest generation type mindset of I'm just going to do my duty. You know, Captain America only briefly wonders about his identity. He's not wrapped up in those personality assessments and all that. He just knows that he doesn't like bullies and that there's a job to be done, folks. He does in in World War II. And then when he gets frozen and sleeps all the way through to the present, he starts picking right back up where he left off in the present. And I love that idea is that it's, uh, it's, it's more of an older mindset there where he's not so wrapped up in himself, but he just, he just does his job and he is willing to plod, even if we don't see that on screen. He's willing to do that normal stuff. Of course, he gets a super serum and all of that, but even before he gets the super serum, he is behaving like a hero on the inside. And I love that idea from the movie, and I really think that at least a story like that is something that we could really learn from and would be a corrective to that hero complex that we have, especially in social media, where so many of us are tempted to go all Don Quixote and tilt at windmills, (laughs) <laughs> and go smash up those spinning blades because we're convinced that we are the chivalrous knight, even though we're nothing of the sort. It's not the value that's the problem, it's us. We are absurd especially when we're going off fighting imaginary villains like that.
2: Yeah, And it's so hard because you have to hold together two things. Um, You can't you can't see the lack of success and slip into a nihilism that says none of it matters. Um, but you have to do what CS Lewis talks about. You know, if you find in yourself a desire, an ideal that this world can't satisfy. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. It means that you weren't created for this world, that there's more of this story to come. And and I'll sort of maybe end it with this one, but I, one of my favorite heroes, not a superhero, a true story is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, of course, been a huge influence on me mm-hmm. a, as a writer and as a pastor. But I often think about the fact, you know, Bonhoeffer was arrested uh, by the Nazis during World War II. He had sort of been uh, colluding with, you know, some of the, the group who was trying to overthrow the Nazi government and smuggling information out about the truth. Truth, what was happening within Nazi Germany and uh, he ended up he was imprisoned for a long time had been running an underground seminary illegally and he was uh executed just literally days hours in some cases before Germany was liberated and the war came to an end and uh, one of the doctors who observed his death said he had never seen a man die uh with more peace than Bonhoeffer did as he was wow. naked and I often think Bonhoeffer, I mean, could Bonhoeffer possibly have imagined a world in which we were sitting around talking about his story and his book, <laughs> Life Together, or The Cost of Discipleship, when he walked up to the gallows in humiliation, naked, under the authority and the power of Nazi Germany, could he have any idea that in a matter of days it would collapse and that the world would be a different place and that his story would speak on for generations to come? Absolutely not, right? And that is he a hero? Yes. Would he have, standing there before the noose went around his neck, said... Look at look at the hero I am, look at what I've accomplished. No, he must have thought nothing of my faithfulness has come to anything. But I think he understood that that is not death is not the end of this story. And he faced it with a kind of conviction that that ultimate ending would still be written. And I think that's what allows us to be faithful, man. If it's in your hands, that's a desperate place to be. If you've got to, if you've got to pull off the ending, that's a lot of pressure to carry on your shoulders. But if faithfulness is what we're called to, and if you see all of these stories in the Bible as a kind of a testament to that, right? A kind of companionship for that kind of faithfulness on the journey. I think there's a heroic conclusion that few of us uh, could ever fulfill in this life.
1: Amen to that. And. Uh, I love Hebrews 12, just the fact that there are so many heroes that have gone before us. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot in the time that we're in, that we want to think, oh, well, where is this headed? You know, what's in the future? And certainly the way I think, I'm very future oriented. But, you know, it's so good to look in the past and see the faithful men and women of the Bible and of our own lives and in history and see what it really was that made their lives heroic and how we can live those same virtues now, but really, you know, ultimately not to, again, not to Jesus juke, but just to see how Jesus was faithful to the end. And he is the ultimate hero. You know, he, he's the ultimate rescuer, but he imparts that gift to us and that character to us. So this has been a wonderful discussion, Chase. Thank you so much for coming on and we would love to have you back another time. So Thank you.
2: Hey, happy to do it. It's Yeah, it's my honor, my privilege. And, and thanks for what you guys are doing. I think it's fascinating. And man, we need all the help we can get thinking about the stories and the characters that culture gives us. So you guys are doing important work.
0: Amen. Chase, where can our followers, our listeners find you in your podcast and other uh, presence on the internet?
2: Yeah. Well, I have a very difficult last name to spell, so I decided to keep it simple. And uh, you can just go to pastorwriter.com. I'm on any of the, the social accounts as the Pastor ThePastorWriter, so I'm always happy to hear from people or talk more about it. Uh, so any of those places, easy to find me.
1: Thanks, Chase. All right. Well, let's hear from the fantastic fans. All right. Well, first, a while ago, we actually got
0: a a lengthy feedback uh, from Travis Perry. He's a friend of mine. He runs Bear Publications, and he also uh, writes articles every Thursday at uh, Speculative Faith. That's the the blog section of the lorehaven.com website. Articles for free for any readers there. Monday through Thursday, most weeks, and quote, he says, quote, to comment on my own introduction into speculative fiction, Star Trek The Animated Series was the first I saw, followed by some Saturday morning cartoons like Space Ghost. Saw Star Wars in the theaters not long after. I also saw the 70s versions of Wonder Woman and the Hulk on TV on occasion and the Adam West Batman a time or two. I was a fan of nonfiction science books, especially books about dinosaurs and outer space. When I got to my middle school library in fifth grade, I saw a section marked science fiction and wanted to know what that was because I was interested in science. My first science fiction book was Rocket Ship Galileo by Robert A. Heinlein, which was the first sci-fi novel he wrote. The title is what drew me. I read all the sci-fi by Heinlein available to me in that library, which was all his clean work. Post-1960s, his sci-fi was drenched in sex, as I discovered around the age of 16. Ugh. I also read a pile of other science fiction writers of the golden age of science fiction of the 1950s, Lester Del Rey, Ray Bradbury, Andre Norton, Frederick Paul, Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, and some few post-golden era sci-fi writers like Larry Niven, Nevin, Jerry Pornelli, I hope I'm pronouncing these right, resume quote, and eventually Michael Crichton. A Christian I knew recommended Narnia to me, so I read the seven books in that series about the time I was reading a lot of sci-fi. I then read Terry Brooks' Sword of Shannara and some other fantasy books, including some Sex and Slavery Drenched, Conan the Barbarian, and Gore series books, about the same time I discovered Heinlein's obsession with sex post-1960s. Eventually, I read Tolkien. Gimli was my favorite character, my first read-through. I didn't have access to a television when Star Trek The Next Generation came out. I've seen Star Trek Deep Space Nine. That was the first sci-fi series on TV. I followed episode by episode. End quote. I didn't know all of that about Travis. It totally makes sense, though, and I'm glad that he, like me, is a niner that is a fan of DS9. Probably the best Star Trek series, as I've said before, uh, even though I have a special love, uh, probably my favorite is actually uh, Star Trek The Next Generation.
1: Our next listener email comes from Bob B. This is his fantastical reader origin story he says quote the mouse and the motorcycle or possibly mrs frisbee and the rats of nim i read them over and over so many times was long before i found the lion the witch and the wardrobe in that whole series by eight i read the hobbit and by nine i was starting the lord of the rings trilogy end quote man that is impressive
0: that's a prodigy there way to go next on fantastical truth we are asking a big question what about that pg-13 content in fantastical fiction you know the ones the violence the bad words the sex and more that's kind of the triple threat that christians have often emphasized and that's also the emphasis in our different sort of episode we have this thanks to our friends and allies at realm makers this is a panel discussion at the 2019 realm makers conference RealMakers is an organization and it's also an annual conference for Christian creators of fantasy and science fiction and beyond. The panel last year about this topic, I was actually on that panel along with several novelists, including C.W. Breyer and Brent Weeks and Terry Brooks. Yes, that one, the aforementioned Sword of Shannara author himself. So we all got to explore this together. It was a great discussion. And now, courtesy of Realm Makers, you can join us. Really appreciate them sharing that recording with us. And for more information, you can go to realmmakers.net and look at the details about the conference and the annual membership, especially if you are a creator of Christian sci-fi and fantasy. Meanwhile, stay faithful, even in the little ways. Recognize that even those superhero stories include the training montages that are sped up for the sake of the movie, but in real life, we have to experience them in real time. Don't skip over in the plotting moments, realize that the simple faithfulness, especially if you're a Christian, is the key to the true heroism in the story of Jesus Christ, the true hero, as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth.